Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, episode 19. The ferry was a shoe-shaped semi-schooner set with black sails and stinking of skate and seaweed that had been converted to run folk across the Thames by the captain, Gourmain Thinnergrade, a lounge lover round of face and flat of feet. He wore oilskins and boots, like the Tars who worked for him. Have you ever considered changing your vessel's name? Jeremy asked. Gourmain shook his head. It's bad luck, too. But the Titanic stories. Nonsense dreamed up by competitors that we take no notice of. Jeremy shrugged, glancing at Mrs. Seems fair enough, he remarked. Mrs. made no comment. With the anchor hauled up and twenty other passengers aboard, they settled down for the crossing, which Gourmain estimated would take five hours. Jeremy frowned. You sail so slowly? Gourmain grinned, as if suffering from the naive notions of a brat. Thames is a strange river, full of tales and mystery that you, sir, know nothing about. Is advisable to steer clear of such mysteries I found, which makes for a crooked course. Now pay your fee if you please. Lacking coins, Mrs. had to part with her only ring, a silver band given to her inside bedlam by an inmate. Gourmain inspected it beneath his spyglass, then nodded and threw back a trio of copper farthings. I'm nothing if not fair, he explained. Jeremy glanced over the gunwale at the fog rolling up the river. Already he could see flashing lanterns in this fog and hear the appalling cries of victims drowning. Behind him, on the south bank, dogs howled and women wailed. Ancient tales were coming alive. I'm going beneath deck, he said, before the mysteries grab us. They descended a flight of steps to the sconce deck, where Jeremy saw a string quartet playing and, a light of delights, a bar. Taking one of the farthings, he purchased a rumour and soda for Mrs. and whiskey for himself. Goodness, he was in need of a drink. This was his first for some considerable time. Grinning at Mrs., he said, This is the life. She still looked worried about the Titanic's notoriety, but her one smile was better than no smile, and Jeremy found himself appreciating what a pretty woman she was. Dash it, though. She was far below his station. Embarrassed, he glanced away, cleared his throat, then sat her on a stool and himself beside her. My dear, he said, are you really the daughter of an Hindu princess? At once, as if telepathically, she seemed to glance his thought process. With insouciant grace, she replied, Why, Jeremy, you've got quite the twinkles in your eye, and me only one of the lower classes. He compressed his lips together, at once annoyed by her cheek, annoyed by her quick wits, attracted by her charm. My dear, he said, one such as I has a station to keep. It's an accident of birth, however. As you know, I value you. 
He sipped his whiskey. Seriously, I do. You're quite something. She softened. I knows you values me, and I values you. What a shame you're a mulatto. She gasped, sat upright, then threw her drink into his face. You fool! Why do you have to spoil it, eh? And she stormed off. But, but the accident of birth, he murmured. The barman, a tow-headed youth, spat in the glass he was cleaning and began wiping it with a cloth. I'd run after that and then apologize, he said. Charmy stood up. Nobody asked you, Mr. Tradesman, he said. He departed the bar and hurried after her. But escaping the crush at the end of the sconce deck, he found that he had lost her. Querying at Jack Tar, he discovered she'd fled to the hoop deck. He must apologize. He must. Visions of mistakes with Valentina returned to his mind, and he cursed himself for being a nincompoop. Mrs. He called out. Where are you? As he passed a door, an arm reached out, grabbed him, and drew him into the doorway. He glimpsed lace, dark hair, heaving breasts. He smelled perfume and fur. Before he realized it, he was inside a cabin, a catwoman before him. We always get some man, she said. Her voice was soft and familiar, though he sensed this was not the catwoman who'd bedazzled him at the bordello. Must be the other one. Damned hell, he was in trouble. But too late. She was naked before him, and he was taking off his jacket. Her contours were astonishing. It was like pink architecture. He never before had noticed how a woman was constructed. Then she lay on her back upon the bed, her stocking legs raised high. He flung off his clothes and leapt upon her. Then everything was a blur. A blur of intensity like raw meths in his bloodstream, a heat like the heart of the sun, a thing beneath him, an animal and yet a person. He found himself lying at her side, a single cotton sheet upon his glowing body. She lay beside him, and he looked at her face and saw it fade from cat to human to woman. It was Mrs. She turned over and gazed at him. Her expression unreadable. Her hair was soft and flowery, perfumed. Her eyes dark orbs of pain, albeit edged with pleasure. That was nice, she said, with a shy smile. So you, he murmured, you are one of them. It's the curse of old Father Thames, she said. I'm not one now, no, but I used to be. Oh, I used to be, like my mother, who was an Hindu princess. She was captured by a knob in Calcutta. Who was staying with the Raja, Sir, Sir Fine, was it? Jeremy sat up, resting his head on one hand, his elbow digging into a pillow. Not Fine. Yes, Hosley Fine. She drew in a single quick breath. Charmy, yes, that was the name. I forgot it till now. You knows the man, eh? Know him? He's an absolute cad. In my club, sad to say, a bounder and a wretch, and he doesn't like me. Why not? I don't rightly know. 
Jeremy paused for thought for a few moments, pondering the events of the night of the wager. You know, I don't know. He's always disliked me, mocked me, taunted me. And for what reason? With her forefinger, she touched his neck, then drew her caress down his chest to his belly. Who could dislikes you, Jeremy? He nodded. I'm known as a decent man, my dear, a Britisher. I suppose I do have odd views on suffering. Do you? Since meeting Valentina Moondust, yes. Who was she? He sighed. Long story. A paramour? Dead now, he sighed again. But I'm here with you, and in all honesty and truth that's what matters. And I'm sorry I mocked you for being mulatto. I accept. For a moment he felt sick. I've been an idiot, he said. Until recently, anyway. But I'll never forget what I've been through lately. You know, Mrs. said, Sir Hosley might be my father. It was such a hideous thought he expelled it from his mind for as long as he could, until she reached out and hugged him. Then he said, I suppose he could be the vile rapist, if I ever find out. Though he mightn't be. Mother says there was a whole party of them. When is your birthday? Eighth of March. I'm eighteen now. Jeremy nodded. Let's assume he didn't do it. I think I'd explode if I thought it was him. It doesn't affect us, does it? He kissed her. No, my dear, he replied. After a while, they returned to the bar, where Jeremy used a farthing to purchase more drinks. At a side table, he saw a psychic mummer, and, on a whim, he took Mrs. over to see the man. Old, one-eyed, and bedraggled, the man had all the tools of his trade before him. To rotten cards, wine and honey, sprigs of heather, and a bowl of water from which steam rose. What's the water for? Jeremy asked. Seize your fortune, the old man replied. A farthing only. Jeremy shrugged and handed over his last coin. The old man drew them in by gesturing with his hands in a melodramatic fashion until their faces were but six inches from the bowl. Jeremy began to feel uncomfortable. Though the water was clearly hot, the bowl and the table round it was cold, and the man's blind eye had a distinct glow to the skin, as if something bright lay behind the diseased flap of flesh. Ah, he said. I see terrors awaiting. I do terrible terrors. Really? Jeremy said, trying to appear unruffled. But you people all say that, don't you? It's part of the game. The old man cackled and clicked his fingers, whereupon Jeremy saw two stick figures floating in the water that he realised represented him and the missus, floating on a crouton. He stared. Where had these objects come from? Ah, said the old man. Tis a bane fair trip over the water, ain't it? Mrs. leaned in, trying to see through the steam what the figures were doing. But then there was a motion behind her, and the tow-haired youth bumped into her, knocking her glass out of her hand. Jeremy turned round, vexed. 
I'm so sorry, ma'am, the lad said, retrieving the tray he carried. Slipped, I did. Go away, the old man barked. Sharmy turned back. The missus stared at the bowl. One of the ice cubes in her drink had leapt from glass to bowl and was now floating towards the crouton. As he watched, it bumped into the crouton. The crouton sank. The stick figure representing Mrs. sank too, though the other floated. And as Sharmy stared at all this, the string quartet took up and began playing. None of the psychonomists could help Velvine uncover the true nature of love, so he was left with one obvious choice, the church. Brought up to fear God and stand in awe of Jesus, he realized that the preachers of heaven above must know more about love than anybody. And so one day he clambered into his Archimedean floating system, in which he currently lived, birthed in Paddington Recreation Ground, and flew to the church of Her Holiness the Virgin Mary in Maida Vale. Attempts had been made to trim the hair around the church, but it grew high nonetheless, brown and thick, falling down from the roof in a floppy fringe. A path had been shaved through the hair, which Velvine followed, walking in silence into the empty, echoing building. He saw a single man in a brown robe polishing crucifixes, a man who turned and smiled when he heard Velvine enter. Welcome, my son. I'm Father Further. Velvine felt soothed. He had been brought up in a house steeped in religion. The church air felt like balm. Father, I've come to ask for help. The church is always here to help members of its flock when they want to confess. Well, I don't wish to confess, more to discuss. But which of us is without any sin to confess? Valvine considered. I can't think of anything at the moment, but listen, Father, I want to talk about love. A beatific expression appeared on Father Further's face. God has granted one of my wishes. Father Further gestured for Velvine to sit down on one of the front pews. Velvine, complying, continued, You see, I'm part of a wager, the object of which is to... A wager? Betting is a sin. Velvine hesitated. It's an intellectual wager with no money changing hands. Father Further pondered this, then reluctantly said, Carry on, my son. I need to find out what love is at my earliest convenience. Can you give me any guidance, eh? I certainly can. And I can do it in one word. God. Velvine nodded. Uh, could, could you be more specific, eh? I may have to give a speech to make my case when the time comes. Father Further nodded. God is love. Pure love. Velvine nodded again. This was going to be more difficult than he'd envisaged. How do you know God is pure love? he asked. If I knew, I could perhaps state the facts to my colleagues. There are no facts in the church. We have faith, and faith alone supports us and guides us. I'm not quite getting my point across here, Father, Velvine said. 
He thought back to events in his recent life and said, Let me give you an example. You know these chaps Rutherford, Röntgen, Einstein? Don't mention his name in this sanctified place. And, uh, well, Chadwick, Bohr, Mickelson, and so forth. They've made discoveries which they support with evidence. Belvine considered what he just said and realized he'd never thought of things in quite this way before. By using evidence, he continued, they show the nature of the world around us. All I want is some evidence as to the nature of love, so I can explain to my dear colleagues what I have discovered. Father Further gazed at Velvine with an expression half scornful, half suspicious. I say God is love, he declared. My faith tells me this. Faith supports the majority of the English-speaking world in such a belief. Isn't that good enough for you? Well, uh, things have moved on slightly, eh? Modern science and all that? Modern science? Can modern science explain why London is hairy? Have the professors at the Royal Institute told us yet? Well, they're probably still performing experiments. You're an interloper, Father Further declared, standing up. I knew it. Velvine, irritated, also stood up. Has God then told you the reason for hairy London? Yes, sin. The sin of covetousness caused by industrialization. Greed, it is the same thing. But how did he do it, eh? We do not stand here and ask God for explanations. Are you a believer or a mountbank pretending to have faith? Velvine, asking himself that question, realized he could not immediately reply. Before his mind's eye came images of his mother and brothers. Yes, he believed in God, but perhaps not the God of this man and this church. I don't think I'm quite ready to become a Darwinian, he murmured, half to himself. Father Further ran to fetch a book from the lectern, which he showed to Velvine, riffling to a page and opening it. There. Do you see the face of Einstein? And do you dare mention another of the names of... Now look here. Velvine said. The book showed Einstein with horns and a tail. This is needlessly vindictive, I think, depicting a popular scientist. No! Father Further stood back, throwing the book aside and raising the crucifix hanging at his neck into the air. This evil must come out of you. You're possessed by Einstein. Velvine, now fearing for Father Further's sanity, took a few steps backward. I say, he said, I think the isolation has got to you. Congregation not able to come here on a Sunday, eh? As the Yankees say, stir crazy. Father Further began muttering. Velvine began walking backwards. F Father, what are you doing? I'll cast out this evil myself. Velvine turned and bolted but found himself held back, as if his legs were plodding through treacle. He turned to see Father Further grown in stature, his crucifix enormous, his pate reflecting the golden light of a halo. Jesus, he swore, turning to run as best he could. The exit lay fifty yards away, 
Father Further began to make pulling motions with his arms, as if reeling Velvine in with a fishing net, and a vicious grin appeared on his face, matched by the ghastly light in his eyes. The halo now shone full and gold, and it seemed to Velvine that if this faith-addled man touched him, he would be a goner. With a cry, he flung himself forward, panic lending him extra strength. Einstein, he cried. Niels Bohr, rescue me. Perhaps these two names saved him, or perhaps terror gave him enough strength to escape the clutches of the priest. His legs worked, his strength held. In a few moments, he was at the exit, grabbing the door jams and pulling himself forward, then hauling himself out. And when he was out, the traction ceased, the words ceased, the door slammed shut, and he stood outside an ordinary church. He ran back to the Machinora and leapt inside. Nobody followed. There was nobody else abroad in Maid of Ale. All lay silent. He turned to the clay figure and said, I think I had a lucky escape there. The figure said nothing. He did not expect it to but he noticed that the face was clearer than it had been before. A hint of a nose and a mouth, two half-orbs that might be eyes with eyelids shut, two lumps on the sides of the head that could be ears. He could tell from elementary anatomy that the rest of the body was developing, turning into a woman, definitely a woman. Hmm, he said. Well, you must come with me for now. I cannot let you go after all we've been through. The figure, he thought, moved, but it must be the wind or a twitch of the machinora. But where to go, he said. The clay figure made no reply. Then Velvine had an idea. Remember my time in the land of the Thai, he asked the figure. Follow these Buddhist chaps, I wonder if my own religion cannot answer my questions. Perhaps an Eastern one can, eh? Damn clever, the Orientals, I've always said so. Smiling to himself, he cast off and floated into the sky. You've been indulging in Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, narrated by R.D. Watson. <laughs> 